They say all good things must come to an end. And today we are at the end of our study of the book of Revelation. But what an end it is. Welcome to the deep end. This is the Bible. And this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. Thank you for joining us. This is the Deep End. Okay, hello, podcast audience, Deep Enders all around the world. My name is Tim. I'm the host of the Deep End Podcast, where we dive deep into the scriptures with the Deep End Podcast study of the book of Revelation. We are there, friends. We are at Revelation 22. I want to remind you, if you are a deep ender, please like and subscribe us. Uh, subscribe to us on youtube.com slash thedeependtv, facebook.com slash thedeependtv, instagram.com slash thedeependtv. Also check out our website, thedeepend.tv. And remember, you can pick up your deep end Tumblr at thedeepend.tv. And the reason that I tell you about the Tumblr is because we're going away for many weeks, six weeks about. Uh, I will see you on the flip, on the flip side. We are going to flip the deep end. The deep end is changing. The studio is going to change. We're going to rearrange some furniture. We're going to make some changes for season three. Season three will start somewhere around the third week of September. And so a couple of changes that our team has put together. We're going to give you a little bit of a flash of what's going on with the changes. We put this on the whiteboard there. You can see some of the, some of the ideas. What about a live audience? Uh, what about Tuesday at 7 p.m.? And you can join us here. Limited seating, of course. So we'll see how that works out. We're going to think about doing a touch screen, uh, moving the wall, making the room bigger. Well, uh, well, we'll see what happens. Bible text. What does that say? Bible text. What does that say? I can't read that. Can anybody just shout that out at me? Bible text, like third from the bottom. Bible text. Markup screen. Okay, there we go. We've been doing that on the uh, iPad, but we'll maybe do that on a big screen. Anyway, those are some of the changes that are coming to the deep end for season three. What do you think about what do you think about live audience 7 p.m. on Tuesday? Let us know in the comments below, friends. The comments below. Also, if you're watching us on the Waters Church YouTube, uh, we'd love you to switch over to the Deep End TV YouTube. Please do that. We want to move our chat over to that uh, page as well. So it, they're, they look the same, but they're not. So one has the Deep End logo, one has the Waters Church logo. We want to go over to the Deep End logo and uh, create the chat there. Do us a favor. Again, been asking you for several weeks, and some of you have done this already, but leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or the Deep End Facebook page. Your reviews help us spread the word and grow the audience. Okay, let's get into the Deep End news. The deep end news is that Katy Perry has stolen music from a Christian rapper, and this is incredible news. Marcus Gray, who goes by the stage name Flame, wrote a song in 2009 called Joyful Noise, and it sounds like this. Pretty cool. I like that. Before we get copyright infringement ourselves, <laughs> we want to mention that the jury on Monday found out that Katy Katy Perry's 2013 hit Dark Horse improperly copied a 2009 Christian rap song in a unanimous decision that represented a rare takedown of a pop superstar and her elite producer by a relatively unknown artist. This is from the Associated Press. The verdict by a nine-member federal jury in the Los Angeles courtroom came five years after Marcus Gray and two co-authors first sued in 2014, alleging Dark Horse stole from Joyful Noise, a song Gray released under the stage name Flame. I like this news. You know why? Because usually it's Christians who are trying to copy the world. <laughs> now it's the world trying to copy Christians. Isn't that cool? So your thoughts about whether or not this is the same song. So Joyful Noise... Dark Horse. Okay, let's try that again. Joyful Noise. Dark Horse. You know that? I guess that's copyrighted. <laughs> so be careful. Be careful with the bleeps and bloops out there, music producers. You might get sued. <laughs> but I think... Um, to me, growing up in the 1980s and 90s and watching Chris Christian music desperately try 
to copy exactly what the world does, but just change the musics into Christian lyrics. Um, this is actually a win, I think, for Christian music artists. We're getting good. Our fellow Christians are getting so good that their music is getting stolen by secular artists. And uh, one of the arguments that Katy Perry's uh, lawyers made was Katy Perry would never listen to Christian music. She would never listen to that music. She couldn't possibly have stolen that music. And so anyway, they said, well, wait a second. Let's not pretend that Katy Perry does not know about Christian music. She was raised by Christian evangelists and was a Christian and tried to become a Christian pop star. And when that failed, she went into the secular music industry. I don't know if she failed or she just decided, you know, Christianity was not for her. I don't know. But she went from Christian music hopeful, pop star hopeful, to secular music star. Her her parents, um, who actually, I think I met her parents in L.A., uh, they are still evangelists, uh, praying desperately for her their daughter to come to faith. And I pray for her to come to faith. Yeah, it's just sad to see so many of the young people of the church walk away from Christ, and we're going to talk about that in another section of the Deep End Podcast. But let's, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. Here we are in the book of Revelation. And there it is. That's the last time you're going to see the Book of Revelation bumper here on the deep end. It's over today. Revelation chapter 22, Maranatha. Maranatha is the title. Why? Because Maranatha is the Aramaic saying, come Lord Jesus or come Lord. And this is Revelation chapter 22's sacred theme. Come Lord Jesus. Are you looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus? I am Every Christian should. It's going to happen. We need to be ready. Christ could come before the end of this podcast. Wouldn't that be amazing? Last week, we talked about Revelation chapter 21. The heavenly city comes down. We're going to open up, still talking about the heavenly city, in Revelation chapter 22. But I wanted to just point something out about the Bible so that you understand how to read it. There's a, there is an outline. There is a general outline to the Bible. It goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, culmination. See, Creation, fall, F, R, redemption, C, culmination. Create, let me just do that again. Creation, fall, redemption, culmination. All right? Creation is two chapters, and culmination is two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, creation. And Revelation 21, 22, uh, culmination. But between that is 1,185 chapters of how God has determined to heal the world from the consequences of sin. That's how you read the Bible. Isn't that cool? It's so simple. Two chapters in the beginning, life with God. Two chapters at the end, life with God. Peace, harmony, no sin. All the chapters in between, 1,185 chapters, dealing with God's solution to the sin problem. Last week we talked about this. A lot of people like to say Christians are aloof to the pain and evil of the world. They are not. We, we see it clearly. We experience it, just like non-Christians do. But we wrestle through it and the problem of evil with what the scriptures reveal that God did not want to leave us fallen in sin and hurt and cursed and stained, but wants to save us, redeem us, pick us up, purify us, cleanse us, and make us and restore us back to Himself. That's the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is redemption. God is bringing all things back into order. It opens with a garden. It ends with a city. So he's going to use the progress through human history to bring about that culmination. But nonetheless, the ultimate point of all of our time on this earth is to hope for, long for, and hasten the coming of the culmination of the plan of God. So without further ado, Revelation 22, here we go. Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Okay, so right there off the top in Revelation 22, we are seeing the same symbolic images, or we are seeing symbolic images here, that are begging us to see Genesis chapter 1 and 2, because in the original creation, there is the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a garden. There is a river. There's actually four rivers in the Garden of Eden. 
And we are called to see that God is dwelling amongst mankind. We are here, we are here reading about uh, fruit yielding each month, 12 kinds of fruit. 12, remember we talked about the that refers to God's governance, 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. Um, we talked about this in one episode a long time ago. Don't know, if don't know if you remember, but how is time governed? Time is governed by 12 hours of the morning, 12 hours of the evening, and the day is divided by the, 12, uh, the, the number 12 hour. And, and so here we are just starting the, the 12th hour, right, of Wednesday. And so we're right there at the dividing line even of this day. 12 is God's number of, of governance. And so the, the, the garden is restored to governance. We're going to see this. The garden is restored to governance of the, by those who are ruling and reigning with Christ. Now, the first thing it shows us is a river of the water of life. Now, remember Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. She, she came to him, or I'm sorry, yeah, well, she showed up while he was there, and she was a five-time divorcee, and he talked to her about rivers of living water, and he said to her in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And this is pointing to, Jesus pointing to himself as the source of living water. Notice that in Revelation 22, the river flows from the throne of God, and there is a corollary uh, image of a river from the throne uh, in Ezekiel 47, and it's an, interesting, it's an interesting picture in Ezekiel 47. Lots of parallels here, because Ezekiel is commanded to go and measure the river that flows from the gate of the temple, and as he keeps going further down the river, the river gets larger and wider as he goes further from the east gate of the temple, and it's a picture of the church filled with the Holy Spirit, not decreasing, uh, Naturally, rivers do not get wider as they get further away from their source. They get narrower, or at least they stay the same. But they don't get wider to the extent that Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 47. And so the picture here is of this river that continues to increase in number and influence, the point being that those who come to Jesus and drink flow from the throne of God, and they become this increasing river, and they, and, and they bring life and healing and abundance Everywhere they go. We talk about this all the time. Wherever Christians are a strong and faithful presence, communities are better off, neighborhoods are better off, states are better off, nations are better off. And so the river of life is in the, is in the final picture here of the heavenly city because it's a testimony to the fact that the church is there, infused with the Spirit, and notice bringing healing to the nations and bearing fruit. These are symbolic images. I know it's symbolic because it says that the tree of life is on either side of the river, and the Greek translation doesn't have the tree of life. It just says tree of life, and so we, in effect, are the church now. The church becomes this source of life in the heavenly city and yielding fruit, and there's plenty of abundance, and you see the, the main themes here are healing, abundance, um, just the, the, the flow of God in the body of Christ. But it's all about, first, the water. And don't miss this. Water is a picture in the, in the scriptures for satisfaction in life. You ever watch those survival shows? I, my wife and I are a sucker for survival shows. We love all of them. We started with Survivor way back. It was not really a survival show, but it's a game show. But anyway, way back in the, two, you know, in the year 2000 when that came out. And then we moved on to Survivor Man, uh, and we watched something called Live Free or Die. And then, of course, we watched Bear Grylls. Um, which, which is kind of faked. I don't know if you know about that, but some of the stuff that he did was faked. But the one to watch right now, we think, is Naked and Afraid. Naked and Afraid. Yes, Naked and Afraid. Uh, it will give new meaning to the Garden of Eden for you, let me tell you. And they take these two Americans from polar opposite stages of life, and they put them in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of these horrible conditioned places, you know, these remote jungles or wilderness locations or deserts, and they give them nothing. They don't even have their clothes. And they have, like, a flint, and a machete. And sometimes they're stupid enough not to take the flint. They take the fire starter sticks and they can never get a fire started. Cheryl and I were always like pulling our hair out. Why would you take the sticks? Take the flint. Are you a moron? It's too humid out there in the jungle to do a little fire with sticks. Anyway, it's always amazing to watch them struggle for water, you know, because the first thing they got to get is shelter. Then they got to get fire. Then they got to get water or some semblance of that order. 
shelter, fire, water. It's always really interesting to watch them struggle for water because water is so important. They can't go very long without water. And uh, what's also amazing is how often they can't even drink the water sources that they have available to them because they are contaminated waters. And uh, so they'll find a water source, but it's contaminated. And sometimes the survivalists will chance it and they'll take a chance and they'll drink the contaminated water and then they get bowled over in stomach pains and then they're out of the game. They're out of the show before you know it. And it's just an amazing illustration. I just think about the waters of this world are an amazing illustration of how we desperately need it, but there are so many contaminated options for it. Hear that again when it comes to water in this world. We desperately need it, but there are so many contaminated options for it. Think about the oceans themselves or water. It's just water, tons and tons and tons of water that we cannot drink. We cannot survive. I don't know if you remember about that Marine corporal in Seattle. He fell overboard off of a naval ship, and he survived 36 hours treading water, and he actually took his pants off and blew them up to be a flotation device, and he was found by Pakistani fishermen later on. And uh, he talks about it. He was a Christian. He talks about it, that for 36 hours he's treading water. Basically, he survived a miracle survival experience, but he just couldn't, he couldn't get past the notion that here he was floating in a sea filled with water, and he couldn't drink it. The only thing his brain kept crying out for was water, and he couldn't drink the water that was right there. Why am I pressing in on this? Because nature itself testifies to our spiritual condition, and our spiritual condition is this. The world will offer you no end of water offerings, but most of them, in fact, all of them, except the Lord Jesus Christ, are contaminated. And they are, in some ways, they create not, they don't, they don't, they don't satisfy thirst. They actually create more thirst i.e. salt water. You drink salt water, you get more thirsty. And um, it's just an amazing testimony to the truth of God's word, nature itself reminding us we need pure water. And that's what it describes here. Um, Look at it in verse 1. It says it's bright as crystal, meaning it's absolutely pure. What does Christ give us? He gives us the pure water of life that is only available through himself. My question to you is what kind of waters are you drinking? Are you checking the water that you're drinking? Revelation 22 is even asking us right now, there's only pure water in Christ. What waters are you turning toward? And I'm always amazed to watch people turn away from Christ. They come to church for a little while, they turn away from Christ, and then I don't see them for like months. And then, I, and then they come wandering back. They come limping back into church, and I just see it all over their faces. They went to the water source that was contaminated, and now they're bowled over in pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, relational pain. They need to get back to the living water. Anyway, Revelation 22 is a promise fulfilled from Revelation 7, 17. Remember, 7, 17 says this, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's going to lead us to living water. And uh, there's the tree. The tree of life, again, which I think could be a picture of the church on both sides of the river, 12 kinds of fruit on both sides of the river, 12, and they're yielding every month, 12 months. Again, God's governance, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, as one, one people, um, fed by the river of life. And then I thought about this picture of the tree of life is now in the heavenly city. Remember the tree of life. Where did it show up last in the Bible? It showed up last in Genesis 2 and 3, that there was two trees in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of, the, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the one they weren't supposed to eat was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate that one. And then because of that, they knew good and evil, knowledge being a familiarity with. So sin brings a familiarity, a fami- familiarity, sorry, familiarity with good and evil. And that eating, that sin, brought that familiarity to our great ancestors and to us. Now think about how sin comes into the world. Think about this, how the Bible unpacks it. The woman eats, and then she hands the man the fruit, and he eats, and the curse comes upon the man because he was federal head in the garden over creation and with his wife reigning, yes, side by side, but he was responsible to feed her in the word of God, the law of God, and he didn't. Instead, he followed her. That's how sin comes into the world. The woman hands the fruit to the man. Think about how sin gets atoned for. The true Adam, Jesus Christ, comes. He dies. He takes the curse that Adam gave us upon himself, dies on the tree. Christ himself became a curse for us. Galatians 3 talks about that. Now think about this. He rises again, and he tells the disciples, this is my body. Well, before before the cross, he tells the disciples, this is my body and blood. Take, eat all of it. And he is hung on a tree for our sins. 
Here's what I'm trying to show you. He becomes the tree of life. On the tree, his death becomes our life. And in taking the communion elements, or if you want to call it Eucharist or the Lord's table, whatever you want to call it, in taking that, we are replicating in reverse order how sin comes into the world. Sin comes into the world by the bride of Adam giving Adam the fruit. Now sin is atoned for. Christ takes his body and blood and gives it to us, and we take from the great bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom, the bride takes the fruit from him, and we have life. Isn't it cool how the Bible continually you know, correlates and shows us in these symbolic terms the reality of our salvation? It's all teaching us to look to Jesus. That's what it's really teaching us. And so it says that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And I don't know if you are watching what I'm watching, but the nations need healing. They need healing. Um, you know, we think about even in the news this week, President Trump is angry at Elijah Cummings because he wants to impeach him based on the Mueller report, which has no teeth anyway, but they're not stopping it. And so President Trump gets angry and he criticizes Elijah Cummings Baltimore District, which, by the way, is a mess, and even the mayors of Baltimore have confessed it is, a, it is a mess. There are serious problems in that city. And it has the highest crime rate, I think, amongst all American cities. And if it was a nation, the city of Baltimore would have the number four murder rate in the world. Number four murder rate in the world is, in, is, a, is a very problematic city. We need to pray for and plant churches and bring the gospel to Baltimore. But you just see, like, again... Here comes the cries for, of racism. Here comes the cries of bigotry. Here comes the cry because he criticized someone's district who happens to be African-American. Look, you can't, it's so ridiculous how everybody is so upset all the time at everything. The moral outrage nation that we have become. Everything is a, is a slight against us. Everything is an offense. You know, we talk about the millennials being, being snowflakes. The whole stinking country is a bunch of snowflakes. Everybody gets offended at everything. And we're just like pointing our fingers at everybody, how they offend us, how they upset us, how they, they mistreated us or culturally appropriated us or whatever they did that makes us feel harmed and triggered. I mean, look, we need healing. We need to come together. We need to come together and, and, and bring our lives together to the throne of Jesus for him to bring us together as one people. And I think the only answer is Jesus. And I think that the craziness that we see in the world today is pointing to the fact that we can talk about plurality, we can talk about diversity, we can talk about unity, but there's truly no unity, diversity, and plurality without Christ. It just becomes a hotbed of social angst where we just point fingers and yell at each other. Anyway, that's what happens here. This is where we're going. We're going to a place where the nations are healed. Those ancient hostilities healed. That black-white hostility healed. That Jew-Gentile hostility healed. Healed in Christ Jesus. That that. Irish Catholic, Irish Protestant hostility healed in Jesus. This is where we're going, and it's just going to be so wonderful. Okay, we've got to move on. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, which, by the way, I think is the best part of the eternal city. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Again, uh, nothing accursed in the heavenly city. Nothing accursed, meaning stained with sin. Nothing that is um, outside of God's blessing. Think about the word accursed is the opposite of blessed. And so we have a blessed eternal city. Seeing his face is the promise fulfilled in Matthew 5, 8 that Jesus said, to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then the name on foreheads. Uh, we see this throughout Revelation. The mark of the beast appears on the forehead. Our, uh, the Lord's name uh, appears on uh, the foreheads of his people. What is this pointing to? It's pointing to an Old Testament reality. That in the Old Testament, the high priest put was uh, marked with the name of God, holy to the Lord, on his forehead, and he entered once a year, one time a year, into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. But in the new city, all God's people have his name on their foreheads, and they all have eternal time in the presence of God, and we enjoy his face. We finally get to see the face of God when the culmination of the age, ages arrives. Isn't that a beautiful promise to see the face 
of God. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament when Jacob reconciles with Esau, and Jacob is so afraid that Esau is going to come and kill him, and he is looking like he's going to come and kill him with 400 army uh, soldiers coming to meet uh, Jacob, but something happens in the heart of Esau as he sees Jacob limping over the horizon to come meet him, and his heart is broken for him, and they uh, embrace, and they reconcile, and I'll never forget, Jacob says to Esau, for to see your face is is, is as to see the face of God. The reconciliation that happens between Jacob and Esau. Peace and harmony. What is happening in the heavenly city? Peace and harmony with God. We are no longer running and hiding like Adam and Eve did. We are no longer running from God. No, we can turn toward him and we can see him face to face and enjoy his presence and fellowship in our lives. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse six. Then he said to me, or Andy said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed, listen to this line, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay, remember that Jesus has been revealing to us through his angel what will take place. And this is what he's saying, okay? These words are trustworthy and true. I'm showing my servants what must soon take place. You can't understand Revelation unless you are a servant of Christ. Now, all through this study, we've been talking about those four views. The preterist, which sees all of this happening before 70 AD. The futurist, which sees this as the book of Revelation as spanning the church age until the time of Christ's return. The futurist, which says it's the last seven years before Christ's final return. And the spiritualist, who says it's just principles for, all, for the church in all ages and in every place. And I've said this repeatedly. I want to say it again. Uh, I believe all four views can be valid. I really do. I believe all four views can be valid. A lot of these things did happen in AD 70. And they've also happened in other places throughout the world. And I do think that there's coming a final apostasy at the last age, last, the last, last days, where we will see unprecedented evil in this world, unprecedented immorality, unprecedented de- deception, and lies from Satan infecting the lives of billions, not millions, billions of people, and, uh, and then we will see Christ come again. So maybe I'm a spiritualist idealist in that sense, in that I do believe it applies to God's people in every age at every time. But the point is, is this, verse 7, I am coming soon, Jesus. I am coming soon, and blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I am coming soon. It's been how many years? 1900 and what, uh, 63 years since Jesus went to be with the Father the first time he came? It's been a long time, almost 2,000 years. And, and you start to think, <laughs> I guess he was wrong about that soon thing. But you, you're, not, you're, not, you're not hearing what the Scriptures are saying. Act as if he's coming soon right now. I am coming soon. And you know what? In comparison to the rest of eternity, it is soon. Like three billion years from now when you're in heaven, okay, the time of the Lord's return will seem like soon (laughs) in regards to human history. So 2,000 years, nothing. But notice that the admonition is to keep the word. Okay, let's get down to the nitty-gritty, as Nacho Libre says, the nitty-gritty. Okay, We, we are called to trust the scriptures. Blessed is the one who keeps the words. My question to you is, are you keeping the words of Christ? And by keeping, I mean, are you guarding, protecting, and following, and honoring the word of God in your life? The word of God. Scriptures are inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Inspired. It's Holy Spirit inspired. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. That means there's, there's no mistakes in what God has declared in his word. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We're talking about scriptural inspiration, the authority of scripture. Galatians 1.12, Paul says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is really the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There, 
there is a battle going on, dear Christian, for the reliability of the biblical text. A battle over the truth. The question of our age, the question of the age as we get closer to, I believe, the end-time apostasy is simply this. Will we trust God's word or will we listen to culture? That's the question. And you're going to answer that every day of your life. Are you going to trust God's word or are you going to follow culture? Now, I have been thinking about this my whole life. My whole life I've heard these things about great apostasy, falling away, people denying the faith. And now we see it. Now we're living in a time in the age where we see it. Not just Katy Perry, <laughs> but we're seeing notable Christian leaders falling away from the faith. Recently, um, the pastor of the largest Methodist church in America wrote a book called Making Sense of the Bible, where he established three buckets into which all Scripture falls. One of three buckets. The first two buckets, I got no problem with. Bucket number one, this Scripture reflects God's heart, character, and timeless will for human beings. And to be fair, he says most of Scripture falls in that bucket. Then bucket number two, he says, it expressed the will of God in a particular time, but is no longer binding. And I agree with that too, because the laws and the sacrifices of the Old Testament ceremonial system are no longer binding upon Christians. And everybody who is glad that we do not have to sacrifice, sacrifice goats at church said, amen, right? But then bucket number three is where it really breaks down. Now, this is the largest, the pastor of the largest Methodist church in America, Adam Hamilton, uh, making sense of the Bible. Bucket number three is, there is scripture that never, quote, never fully expressed the heart, character, or will of God. Whoa, end quote. Not the, not the whoa, just the line. And then I said, whoa. So forget the whoa. He didn't say whoa. I say whoa. I say whoa because he's out of his flipping mind. All right. He says, look, there are some passages of Scripture where we have to just say, that wasn't God's will. That wasn't God speaking. That was a misinterpretation of what God meant. Now, among these things are the conquest of Canaan. And if you've ever read Joshua, you heard this argument. How could God command his people to thoroughly destroy and annihilate the Canaanites? And he writes, quote, these were human beings who lived, loved, and had families. Among them were babies and toddlers, mothers and fathers. Yet they were put to the sword by the Lord's army. 31 cities slaughtered with not, no terms of surrender offered and no chance to relocate to another land. I came to see the moral and theological dilemmas posed by these stories. In other words, and so he says the conclusion is Israel misheard the Lord and slaughtered these people. Well, if that's the case, why didn't God ever judge them for slaughtering the people? He never did. He actually judges them at, in the book of Judges for not slaughtering all the people. And so you say, well, I have a problem with that too. Why would God command his people to slaughter people who, you know, were so innocent? Well, first off, you are making a huge assumption a, an enormous chronological snobbery assumption. And chronological snobbery is a term from C.S. Lewis that we always see the past differently because we know better. But we have to remember that the Canaanites were not good people. And by the way, one of the Canaanites did hear what they had done, who they were, and converted. Her name was Rahab. She becomes the great ancestor of King David and Jesus. And she was a prostitute. And she was saved because of her faith because she had heard what the Lord did for Israel in Egypt. And she, for 40 years, waited for them to come to her house so that she could join them. And she did. But the rest of them did not repent. In fact, they came out to fight Israel. Jer Jericho tightly shut up its walls before Jericho was fallen. Why? Because they didn't want any part of it. And it's a great misunderstanding. This bucket number three thing here. Great, huge misunderstanding. We've talked about this. About understanding the ontological realities of the human heart. The human heart is wicked and evil. These Canaanites, he says, he says in his book, these, they, they were human beings who lived, loved, and had families. No, they weren't. They were slaughtering their animal, they were slaughtering their children to the gods of Molech and Kamosh. They're throwing their children into the fire. By the way, this is a practice that a wicked king of Israel will re rehabilitate later on as Israel declines and descends into immorality. They were putting their kids into fire sacrifices. They, they were not and I hate to say this, but it's true. They were not redeemable. This is true from Scripture beginning to the end. There, there does come a point in the human heart and the human condition where we become so hardened, there's no chance. Especially when we taste of the heavenly gift, as Hebrews 6 says, and then we turn away from it. We become twice over apostate, and, and, and we're not to pray for those people. They're done. It's over. This is a firm warning. Stay in the faith. Keep the word of God. We are not supposed to play games around this stuff. It is serious. Fight for truth. 
But the, the, the question, the, the greater question of these three buckets for Adam Hamilton that I have is, who gets to decide which per- parts of the Bible don't reflect God's will and which ones do? Because if a Muslim interprets those Canaanite um, uh, conquests, he'll say, hey, that sounds like a good idea for the God of Israel to command his people to slaughter the foreign nations. A, a Muslim jihadist tries to do this very same thing on the promise of 72, 72 virgins waiting for him on the other side of this life. I mean, that's, that's where 9-11 comes from. Not all Muslims believe that Muslim jihadists I'm talking about. But what I'm trying to say is who gets to decide what's biblical truth that God intended for all mankind for all eternity and what was misunderstood? <clears throat> Don't you see how everything becomes fair play now? Maybe Jesus was misunderstood when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Maybe Jesus was misunderstood when he said, uh, forgive your brother 70 times 7. I mean, how, come on, really? Like if somebody hurts me 445 times, I'm cutting them off. No more forgiveness for you. Jesus, I'm, Jesus misunderstood. Who gets to decide? Ironically, in his book, Adam Hamilton gets to decide what passages of the Bible are actually truth and what are not. Blessed is he who keeps the word of this prophecy. You've got to keep it. On another note, big news from the evangelical subculture of America. Very famous pastor and author, Joshua Harris, well-known popular figure of evangelical Christianity, renounced his faith in Christ last week. By the way, the week before, he also gave up on his marriage. So there is a trajectory here. He uh, wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which came came out when I was dating, actually. Uh, Somebody gave me this book. Actually, it was a girl who gave me this book. And uh, it's, uh, to, to summarize the book, it's, it's, I, I call it the, um, the epitome of purity culture. And really what I Kiss Dating Goodbye taught was uh, no, no contact with who you're dating uh, until the altar, no kissing, no holding hands, nothing. And you're not even supposed to even go on dates. The, da- the ho- dating itself is the whole, the whole idea of dating is sinful and moral, immoral and wrong. That's basically the um, premise of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Now, this book, this book is the uh, birth child of what I call evangelical purity culture. Trademark. <laughs> evangelical purity culture. I grew up with this stuff. I grew up going to youth events on Friday night where they would help let us play a b- bunch of games, and then they would sit us down, and then they would talk about true love weights. Josh McDowell was a huge proponent of this. True love weights, meaning... Whatever you do, don't have sex until marriage. Don't have sex until marriage. Like, that was it. That, it became, and I'm saying, now listen, I believe you shouldn't have sex until marriage. I believe that. I do believe that. But let's be honest. Most people cannot do this. They fail. And they fail miserably. And so the consequences of purity culture is this ideal that we set up that if we live pure, God will bless us with the spouse of the ages. And so do this, and God will give you that. <coughs> Excuse me. Purity culture is anathema to the gospel. The gospel is not do good things, and God will make a good life for you. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you can't do good things. Good news, God did something great for you. Receive it and live the life he's called you to in response to it. So anyway, Joshua Harris, a couple of years ago, he starts asking forgiveness for I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Then two weeks ago, he, he announces on Instagram he's getting divorced, and now he announces on Instagram he's no longer, no longer a Christian. A lot of you might have questions about this. How can a guy who preached the word of God and the gospel and all this stuff and for years do it now no longer be a Christian? Well, because Jesus told us this would happen. <laughs> Jesus told us this would happen. Why does he say, blessed is he who holds the, and keeps the prophecies of this book? Because there's going to be a lot of people who don't. And when you see Christian, and notable Christian leaders particularly, leaving behind the Christian faith, excuse me, I've got to take a break. Oh, oh, these waters are good. You should get this tumbler right here. Okay, thedeepend.tv. When you see notable Christian leaders departing from the Christian faith, it does not, it does not undermine the teaching of Christianity. It actually supports the teaching of Jesus himself. So Mike Ferris, a Christian author who actually toured and traveled with Joshua Harris's father as a um, Christian speaker, writes an open letter to Joshua Harris on the ChristianPost.com. Love his thoughts. Anyway, he goes through a little bit of reminiscing of when he was a child, but then he gets down uh, to the facts, and he says this, quote, I don't think 
I can reach you in, a pri- in private, and what you have said is, and done is public, so I'm reaching out to you publicly as well. You have walked away from your marriage. That's not right. You have walked away from your faith in Christ. That's even worse. There's nothing about Jesus that says nothing about Jesus and a great deal about you. Jesus told us there would be false prophets and false teachers among us. Your story does not invalidate Christ's message because he predicted that people would do exactly what you have done. I, didn't ex- I just didn't expect it would be, ever be you. I do commend you for the intellectual integrity for recognizing that your secondary views, i.e. embracing the LGBT agenda, etc., are utterly inconsistent with Christianity, as is your view that it is okay to walk away from your marriage for the reasons that you have stated. Both of these prove that you had renounced Christianity before you said so publicly. By the way, he also has come out and announced that he's sorry to the LGBT community. What is it with these people? The first thing you got to do when you walk away from Christ is apologize to the LGBT. If that alone does not prove that the LGBT community has literally taken over the cultural conversation of our country, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it does. Like, that's the first thing. Do you understand? This guy was a pastor of a church that had covered up sex abuse in children. It's sex abuse in children in the leadership of the church. He was the pastor of the church. No apology after walking away from Christ for that, nope, no apology. No, I need to apologize for my harmful views to sinners. And by the way, since when? This is where it's becoming now. A view that a sin is a sin is now becoming harmful. <laughs> this is why more and more people are going to walk away, by the way. More and more people are going to walk away from Christ because of this nonsense, this indoctrination of Christian truth bad, LGBT philosophy good, and step in line or lose your job, your rights, your status, or more. So anyway, he apologizes to the LGBT community. Well, whatever. Good for you, Josh. But, he, but here's the thing. He goes on. Uh, back to the letter from Mike Ferris. My heart aches for you in so many ways. It seems that you thought Christianity was a series of formulas. Formulas for marriage. Formulas for systematic theology. For, fear of choosing the wrong formula. Fear of failing to live up to your formula. Love that line. Love that, that paragraph. You know that I believe in the general approach to courtship that made you famous and pretty rich. You included the story of my oldest daughter and her husband in your second book. I still believe that purity of mind and body before marriage is the right ideal. He's right, by the way. But it's not the formula for a happy marriage. It is simply a guiding principle that has to be applied with wisdom, grace, and often forgiveness. I would never reach this conclusion about you on my own, but what you have said yourself can be fairly summarized as this. As you thought your faith and your marriage were based on formulas, they never went deeper than that. Jesus says about people like you in the last judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. You know that this means you never actually knew him. Good point, Mike Ferris. As immersed as you were in Christian culture and a career as a pastor, you never actually knew Jesus. Josh, you, just summing up, Josh, you and your story are not the measure of the validity of Christianity. Jesus is real. He doesn't want you to return to your prior formulas. He wants you to come to him for the first time and learn to love. I am praying for you, Josh, with love and sorrow. Mike Ferris. End of the letter. There's so much to love about his response, but I just want to say this. Formulaic Christianity needs to go. Formulaic Christianity. What do I mean? That idea that if you do A, B, and C, then God, like a heavenly vending machine, is going to distribute X, Y, and Z. And this is pervasive, especially in purity culture. I was raised in this. I went to those, like I said, I went to those youth nights, and we used to sign little cards, true love waits, sign little cards. I so-and-so pledged to not have sex until marriage. Do you know how many people broke those pledges? And then they felt like they were unworthy. Never could come back to church. Because we asked them to do something scripture, never asked them to do. No, this, this idea, writing down pledge cards. How insane <laughs> the church has been in the past. Look, people are going to fail God. Christians fail God. Our message is not Christians are perfect. Our message is Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners. And, and by the way, Jesus saves Christians. People don't like to hear that, but that's true. A lot of Christians need Jesus. Every Christian does, but a lot of Christians don't even think they need Jesus. They think Jesus gets them in the door, and their good works get them them closer to the goodies. Like the gospel is just the beginning of Christian faith. No, it is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Jesus saves. Jesus saves me from me. Because formulaic Christianity makes you the center of the universe, and God becomes your personal assistant. And you have to shed that idea from your Christian faith. You have to shed that idea. It is not biblical. The Bible is not a manual for getting the good life from God. The Bible is the story of what God has come to do about sin and how he's working currently through his body to bring about a restored creation, freed from sin and shame. And you, 
Christian are not the center, neither am I, of the work of God. We are part of it. And no, 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 we are the objects of God's work. We are the trophies of his grace, okay? The, the, the best thing that I have going for me is that my Savior is cleansing me and purifying me and making me into a new person. That's the best thing. Not my dreams getting fulfilled, not, my, my, not the stars aligning for me in the celestial universe so that everybody pays attention to me and celebrates me. That is just sanctified self-absorption, and it needs to go. Our lives are made and created for the glory of Jesus Christ, period, full stop, not for our own glory. Do you understand that the sooner you come to this conclusion, the sooner that you can actually be free to live the life that God actually does want you to live, which is a life responsive from the gospel, bearing fruit in every good work, doing what he wants you to do, living as a Christian, salt and light, whether you're a, a prosperous Christian in America or a suffering Christian in Pakistan. It's not going to matter where you are because of who is with you where you are. Formulaic Christianity must go. Give up the formulas. They don't work anyway. Trust me, I've tried them. They don't work. This idea, if I don't have sex until I'm married, maybe then God will finally give me that spouse. Or maybe I should start serving in the church so that I can get the spouse. Do you understand that if you start doing formulaic Christianity, you're not actually serving God. You're serving the end of your formula. <laughs> oh, not have sex until marriage to get a good spouse? Okay, so I will serve the good spouse by not having sex until marriage. You're not serving Christ. You're serving yourself because you want the perfect spouse. And I got newsflash for you. No such thing as a perfect spouse. A lot of people think I'm a perfect spouse because I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher and I know a lot of the Bible. Mm-mm. My wife will testify. <laughs> my, life, my wife will testify loud and often that I need Jesus, and I do. There's no such thing as a perfect anything when you do your part and then God just happily blesses you. Now, is there a blessing for obedience? Yes. But you've got to let go of the formulas. You've got to let go of the formulas. And you gotta, you got to just serve Christ. Listen, how about this? Serve Christ because he's worth it. Ooh, I love that. Just serve him because of him. He's the joy. He's the fountain of living water. Amen. Okay. Notice the next line actually debunks exactly what it just said. Because verse 8 says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship the feet of the angel, at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Even the angel's like, don't make me the center. Don't, don't make me important. And, and we, we are falling into a, 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 a um, well, this has always been in the church, but this idea of, getting a little bit too enamored with angelic activity. Angels are servants. They're ministering spirits. They are not to be worshipped. Um, they are not to be sought after. They are God's ministering spirits to accomplish his purposes for those he is redeeming. And here again, for the second time in the book of Revelation, John tries to fall down and worship at the angel's feet, and both times the angel's like, don't do that. The, the words in Greek are emphatic. Do not do that. Worship God. And God alone is the joy of your life, not the sacraments, not the formulas, not the rituals. God alone. If your sacrament and ritual helps you enjoy God, I'm all for it. But don't serve the formula and the tradition. The, the, the formula and tradition get, can get between you and your Father. And he doesn't want that. Verse 10, it says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Just a quick note about that. Daniel's prophecy, he was told to seal up the words of the book because the time had not yet come. John is told not to seal up the book. This is because the time has come. We are living in the fulfillment of the ages. And the next event on the, on the apocalyptic calendar is the return of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Okay, pause. <laughs> Hard and important question about this text. Is the Lord commanding his people to be evil? Just think about that. Let the evil continue to do evil, the filthy continue to, to be filthy? That's a hard text, right? Is the Lord saying, hey, evil people, I like it. Keep it up. <laughs> no. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, the evil continue to be evil so that people can see the plain 
results of evil. This is what he's saying. In other words, let the evildoer be known for what evil produces. Let the filthy be known for what filth produces. And at the same time, let the righteous be known for what righteousness produces and the holy what holiness produces. I, I think, again, we've we, we got to talk about something that's another LGBT thing. And I, I, let, me just, let me just bracket my statements by saying I do not like to talk endlessly about this stuff, but it is everywhere. It has pervaded our culture so much. It is everywhere. You cannot watch a show without it. You cannot listen to a politician without hearing about it. You cannot go to public high school without hearing about even some Catholic high schools and colleges are promoting the LGBT lifestyle as normal, natural, and, per- and perfectly good. Okay, we, It's just everywhere. Pervade, and it's loud and obnoxious. I've, I've even had conversations with unbelievers, people that don't go to church, saying, look, I'm, I'm all for them living the way that they live, but does it have to be forced down everybody's throat all the time in every way? And I agree 100%. But anyway... It's really just a testimony that if we will not worship God, we will worship sex. If we will not worship God, we will worship sex and money. I've talked about that before. That's really our two, our two choices, okay? So the, the, the idea here, of the, the, the let the evil continue to do evil. I, I just think about how LGBT is so celebrated. LGBT is so celebrated. Say the new moral agenda is promoting, supporting, and celebrating the LGBT agenda. Well, let it continue because it's going to be found out for what it is. I bring up Jessica Yaniv, British Columbia, Canada. <laughs> this is a man born Jonathan who identifies as a woman who has not yet had any surgery to change it. And now he's going around Canada demanding that female beauticians wax his male genitals. <laughs> One woman lost her business. Another paid him $2,500 to go away. He proudly tweets pictures of closed locations because of him and his harassment claiming victory. He tweeted on July 18th, quote, this is not about waxing. This is about businesses and individuals using their, listen to this, religion and culture to refuse service to protected groups because they don't agree with it or the person and use that to illegally discriminate. This is the nonsense that has come about. Celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. And now we're finding out, there was a Brown University study, by the way. Brown University study found out that, that children are more, pre, uh, more disposed to, predisposed to identify as the other gender. Do you know why? Because they're getting celebrated that way. Because we're, our culture celebrates it so much that young children are like, well, I want to be celebrated. And so they'll actually say, I'm actually a gender non-binary, and I'm actually a, a little bit, I'm out of the wrong body. I'm born the wrong gender. So they found out through this Brown University study that most of this identification of being misgendered is the result of social media influence and friends' influence, not actually a serious mental condition for these people. And then Brown University published the results of this study, and the the higher-ups in the LGBT community uh, immediately denounced the study's results and forced it to the closet, an interesting terminology, forced it to the closet, and they forced them to redo the study, and the studies were redone, and it came back and it proved it once again that a lot of times these people who are gender confused, are, are gender confused because this culture has made it cool and celebrated the idea of being gender confused. And if you just give those children enough time, they will grow up and realize that that was just a bunch of nonsense in their mind. It was, just, it was peer pressure, plain and simple. <laughs> this is where we are. More and more. It just continues to grow. Back to Jessica Yaniv, or Jonathan, as he should be called. But now the truth comes out that this man was engaged in illicit explicit sexual conversations with minor girls. These include, quote, explicit conversations with minors about their menstrual cycles and attempt to share child pornography and weaponize lawsuits against beauty pageants. <laughs> this, is, this is, let the evildoer continue to do evil. You'll see them for who they are. Meanwhile, he, she tweeted, quote, I'm a woman. Listen to this tweet that she quoted a while back. He, she quoted a while back. I'm a woman. I don't want to see a penis in a public place, especially when there are kids around. Okay, so you don't want to see it, but you want your beautician to have to see yours. This is, this is, a, this is obnoxious nonsense. So I, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander, apparently. Yaniv has also received backlash for petitioning her town of Langley, British Columbia, to allow LGBTQ2S+. The acronym just keeps getting longer. Organizations to host, quote, topless swim parties at community pools for children as young as 12. The petition requested that only LGBT 
LGBTQ2S plus individuals be allowed at these events and that parents and caretakers will be prohibited from attending these events as it's considered safe and inclusive. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Let the evildoer continue to do evil. You'll see them for who they are. And I think that the culture is starting to wake up. There was, an, a, there was a, uh, a studied or a published uh, survey result in the U.S. news uh, site uh, showing that the new generation coming up is growing weary and tired of the constant push for the celebration of LGBT people. And this was a major news item because, oh my gosh, are we regressing? Is this because of Donald Trump or what's going on? I mean, it's just, ugh, it's just nonsense. It's getting tiring, but it's getting worse. And God, Jesus from heaven is like, let it get worse because guess what? My people will wake up. My people will wake up and they will see. And now the lesson for the church is don't mess around with this stuff. Don't mess around. Let the righteous do what is right. Christian, are you castigating these things and then doing them on the side? Do not do that. Let the righteous continue to do what is right and be holy. Celebrate that. Pursue faith. Pursue righteousness. Pursue holiness with God's people. That's our call. That's what we're called to do in this verse. Okay, moving on because i got to get to the end of this podcast. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay. Basically, Jesus is bringing his reward. And to each one, what he has done. Now, that means that good works will be rewarded in Christ. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Remember that. We are not saved by good works. Our good works do not get us into heaven. Christ's good work for us gets, into, gets us into heaven. But we are saved by Christ for good works. Ephesians 2.8, this is the, 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 the best verse in the world, but you've got to read right through verse 10 about salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, even the faith that you have, is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. God gives you the gift of faith to receive Jesus' grace. Verse 9, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we, verse 10, love this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are saved by grace through faith for good works. You are not saved by good works, and then you get the grace and faith. No, you are saved by grace through faith. That means that the worst sinner in the world can get saved. The worst horrible person. Jessica Yuniv could become a Christian. And I pray that he, she does. I do. I pray that they do. So that they can become what God wants them to become and do good works to represent him. But that's, our, that's the gospel's message. We are saved for good works. And we will be rewarded when Jesus comes. Each one. Each one. Not everyone's getting the same thing. This is not Little League, friend. Not everybody gets a trophy of the same size and color in heaven. So my point is, are you sending up good works to be rewarded? Are you sending things up? There's too many Christians floating around churches. They do nothing for the gospel. They're going to heaven, but they do nothing. They don't give. They don't serve. They don't tithe. Oh, they make thousands of excuses for tithing. I don't tithe because it's Old Testament. I don't tithe because it's under the law. I don't tithe because I'm under grace. I don't tithe because of this. I don't tithe because of Look, wait a second. Did Jesus save you from your sins? Are you saved? Are you born again? Are you not going to hell? Is not God good and gracious and generous? Does he not have the cattle on a thousand hills? Can he not supply all your needs according to his riches and glory? Give, for heaven's sakes. Are you trying to tell me that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to make you cheap? No, my friend. It's supposed to turn you into a generous person. A generous person because you know the generous God has saved you generously with the blood of his son, Jesus. Going on. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to life so they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Just quick note about this. Notice that the immoral are still alive in the next age. There is this idea of annihilationism. People say, well, because they didn't become Christians, uh, what's the point of eternal suffering all for all eternity. Well, wait a second. What about the outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual, moral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves practices falsehood in Revelation chapter 22? They are outside the city. They are still alive. And, and, and by the way, this shows us what hell is. Hell is the absence of the presence of God. In the heavenly city, presence of God. Outside, no presence of God. That's what hell is. Hell is beyond the goodness of God. And to reject God is to get no God. To reject him is to get what you want. C.S. Lewis famously said that on Judgment Day, there will be two kinds of people. 
those who say to Christ, your will be done. And those whom Christ says to them, your will be done. You didn't want me, now you don't get me. That's the eternal suffering of the accursed. Verse, 20, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let one who hears say, come. And let one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Oh, how does Revelation start to wrap it all up? Here's how it starts to wrap it all up. Come. <laughs> now, there are three comes in this text. And notice it's the spirit and the bride. So the Holy Spirit which lives in the bride of Christ, inspires and says with the bride of Christ, come. Why am I pointing this out? Well, the first two comes here. Look in verse 17. Uh, the spirit of the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Uh, that, uh, the commentators say, those two comes are directed toward the Lord Jesus. In other words, the spirit is inspiring the church to say, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. We live in in the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's in you. You have a yearning and a desire to see the, the, the Lord Jesus return. It can't go away. Nobody can squelch it. Nobody can squash it. You want Jesus to return. And I hope that that's in your heart as well. Um, but then it says, let the one who desires, I'm sorry, and let the one who is thirsty come. So Jesus isn't thirsty. Now they turn their attention to the people who are lost. And I love this because here's how the Bible wraps it all up. We're hearing warnings. We're hearing plagues. We're hearing destruction of the wicked. We're hearing all those things. And under no circumstances is the Christian church called to celebrate the destruction of the death of the wicked. We are not. We are here to tell the wicked, come. You don't have to stay there. Come. If you're thirsty, if, if life has left you high and dry, come. The heart of the gospel and the heart of the church filled with the Holy Spirit is, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, we want him to come to earth, but we also want people far from God to come to him. And I think if you are a Holy Spirit-filled Christian, you, want, you have those two desires. You, you desire the Lord Jesus, first and foremost. You want him. But secondly, you long to see sinners saved. That's why we do the deep end. That's why we're going to make it better for season three. We want to see people come. By the way, good news at our church here in, in North Attleboro, two people are getting baptized this month because of the deep end. <laughs> Love to hear those stories. They got saved. They got, they got uh, saved a long time ago, but they came in touch with the deep end. They're growing in their faith, and they're ready to take that next step of faith. That's why we do what we do. Nothing thrills me more than to see people come to the Lord Jesus. Well, there's only one thing that thrills me more, and that is going to be the coming of the Lord Jesus. But other than that is coming to Jesus. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy... God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. Okay, there's a common misconception about this verse, that this is saying, don't add to the Bible, don't take away from the Bible. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, don't add to what Revelation has said and don't take away from what it said. And um, basically saying, there, this is the final, fullest revelation of the end of the age. Now, this has not stopped many people throughout human history to add to the Bible. <laughs> Ellen G. White, who founded the Seventh-day Adventists, formed their own uh, apocalyptic literature. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion, founded his own version of the end. Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. All three of these cults deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that is the first and foremost definition of a cult. They deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about the eternal deity, the deity of his pre-incarnate deity, everlasting to everlasting, you are a God. It is talking about Jesus and his eternal deity. Any, any system of religion that denies Jesus' deity, past, present, and future, is a cult. He is God the Son from eternity to eternity. Last two verses, here we go. The grand finale. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Again, Aramaic, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. A third time, Jesus says, I am coming soon. During the four years of Nazi occupation in France during World War II, many of the French people started cooperating with the Nazis. They did this because of fear and intimidation. But small bands of brave fighters waged continuous guerrilla warfare. They sabotaged rail lines, raided military bases, and gave information to the Allied forces whose coming they eagerly awaited. 
The resistance did not know when the British and American troops would finally land on their shores and parachute into their fields, but they had been given a coded information, they had been given coded information to anticipate the event, and on June 1st, 1944, the BBC broadcast first the first coded message hidden in its normal programming, and it simply read, quote, Stand by, we are coming soon. I imagine for many of those French resistance officers and people who withstood the Nazi influence upon their country and upon their souls, many times wanted to give up, many times wondered, will we have a resolution? Will our efforts pay off? Well, we are here today, and we all know the truth. Their efforts and their resistance and their firm commitment to fighting evil and resisting evil paid off. The question is, will that be the case for you? When it comes to following Christ, it's not easy. When it comes to trusting in Jesus in an age where it is growing more and more hostile to, to Christian faith and Christian truth, it will get harder and harder. But we need to stand strong and hear the words of our Savior Jesus, I am coming soon. Last three thoughts I have for you. Knowing Jesus will return, number one, we should live lives of repentance and faith, turning from sin and delighting in the Lord. No more formulaic Christianity, friend. Let Christ Continue to work through you, in you, renew you, change you, purify you. Two, we should hold fast to the testimony of Scripture, understanding the end will prove the means. I am coming soon. So right now it might be hard. Stand strong. He's coming. Number three, we should lovingly and passionately seek to share our faith with those who are far from God. Come, Lord Jesus. Our number one desire is for him to come, but... The second desire is come, neighbor, friend, brother, sister, mother, daughter, son, co-worker, come. Come to the waters of life. Jesus is waiting. And we can say with the revelations, with revelation and its final phrase, amen. I hope you've enjoyed this talk. I hope you've enjoyed this season. I have loved it. I have appreciated so much your kind words about the Deep End Podcast. Leave us a review, please, if you will, on the podcast app of Apple iTunes or Apple, sorry, Apple Podcast. Uh, on the Facebook page, it helps us grow the influence of the podcast. If you think more people need to hear this content, share it on your social media sites. I love you. I thank God for you. I'm looking forward to seeing you next season, season three of the Deep End Podcast. But for now, I say Maranatha. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.